Well, we had a uh, a special guest today, a former major leaguer from the Cubs and the Cardinals that were going to join us, but he couldn't figure out Zoom. So after 30 minutes of trying to get him into the 21st century, we scrapped that. And because we have no agenda anyway, we're going to bring you just some off-the-wall topics with Travis and I. What, Travis, what I first wanted to, to go with today is I spent the last couple days integrating some new players into a system and the first thing I did before just getting some baseline testing done was we did a thorough movement screen. And especially with the market of like 15 to 18 year old players, the surface comps that you do when you look at a, like a, a long, one of these players was 6'4", 225 pounds, he's long, lanky. And you assume right away that this guy is going to be a looser mover. Just the, the surface comp would say that. And it turns out it's completely the opposite. And that, that is one big reason why we do these movement screens, and especially in that 15 to 18-year-old age group, where guys just looking at them are all over the movement spectrum range. Um, and it, I, I go back to the old scouting days, and, and I dabbled in it in both recruiting and scouting a little bit. And we would have those comps all the time. You would see a, a long, loose pitcher, and you would automatically think that that, that guy's going to have upside and velocity just because of the limbs and also because of how they move under the surface. And you and I, and we've said this a couple times, failed in this regard. Like we didn't match this up until four or five years ago when we should have been doing this 15 years ago. And it goes to why I won't ever prescribe a movement for a player without knowing their, their underlying capability. Cause you just don't know if I wouldn't have done this movement screen on this six, four, 225 pound guy, I would likely would have been teaching him mechanics um, to take the slack out of his body with hip and shoulder separation. When in reality, he has very little, if any, because he's a really tight mover. So you can see right away how I would have jumped off, and probably screwed this guy up from the get-go and likely did do that years ago without having this underlying knowledge. And so can't stress enough why, why it's like step one and it was a kind of an aha moment for me. How, how do you relate that to the, to the pitching side as well? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of those things I remember, you know, just going back to, to kick that off to us going to uh, Atlanta um, and going to this TPI certification and, you know, I was excited to go, but I didn't know exactly what it was going to be. Um, and I remember after, not even after day one, like probably at like first intermission of day one, just like at lunch, just like looking at each other, just going, how did we miss this for so long? How, how did, how was this not something that we've always done? And that's, I mean, that's how anything goes, right? Like you don't know until you, till you know, you know, and that went the same way with some of the tech we have and with some of the, you know, ability to, to get in-game data that would not have been available to, you know, to us prior to having it. So like going into pitching, that's like one of those things I actually just had a conversation with um, Devin DeYoung yesterday and we were just talking he's talking about some hitters um and I was kind of talking about the same kind of thing along the lines of pitching and I said you know there's a lot of guys where a longer whip so guys that have more mobility especially especially typically through the thoracic um 
they tend they tend to make better pitchers. Um, and they tend to make better pitchers, A, because it's harder to hit. Um, with a longer mechanism, when you've got a longer whip, shall we call it, um, it's harder to manage that whip in a very small window. Like it's very tough when you're a hitter and you're standing there having to prepare to hit something that you don't know is coming. When you're more reactionary, it's exceedingly hard to control that longer whip. But as a pitcher, because we have more time and space to essentially control that whip, it's easier to set it up to be where it needs to be to control it. Now, even then with guys that have longer whips, they tend to also have some more strength issues when it comes to the full length of that whip, meaning that in a shorter, in a shorter version of it, they've got a little bit more strength, but once the body creates and gets to essentially its longest form, we tend to have less strength at that point. So there are guys that have long whips and they use them even as throwers, but they're not able to maximize that because they're creating so much space. They can't control that end range of motion. So there are some pitchers out there that just like hitters would be, there are some pitchers out there that are going to throw harder and more efficiently by not using their full length and range of motion than they would just by trying to create more range of motion. And that was a big thing in the pitching community for a long time was just hip and shoulder separation, hip and shoulder separation. And, and, it's not and all, the hitting too. Yeah. And it's not all created the same. And for some people more is worse. And for some people more is better, but you're not going to know that unless you do, you know, a, a screen in the first place to know what that actual passive versus active range of motion is. You're not going to know unless you do some sort of, some sort of strength testing, um, with with range of motion within regards of range of motion um and being able to control the muscle as it lengthens out um so i think there's there's a lot that goes into it and absolutely made mistakes i mean i'm not gonna lie you know when things come through like you know for me i had a, i have a really big range of motion which is probably why i made a better pitcher than i made a hitter but i've spent a lot of hours i can't like i can't even quantify how many hours i spent doing core work not even for the reason of knowing that core work was what i needed to do or that the core work that i was choosing to do was actually correct but it benefited me because i was able to control my range of motion so for me when i let that whip get longer i could feel like i was doing very little work to throw hard because i could control that range of motion now again i didn't in my off seasons i didn't even do that to prep for that that is just what happened I just luckily, I luckily, I luckily fell into a workout doing something that was just like, well, I got to do core work. And I didn't realize why it was helping me, but it helped me. And most of these guys, I had a conversation with a pitcher yesterday in the facility, a high school kid. And we were talking about that because he, he in a short range of motion has really good control of his rotary stability. But once you get him to his max length and rotary in, in his movement profile, he can't control it as well. So we spend time and I told, we talked about saying like, you know, for, for you right now, you need to pitch in the length you have, because if you try to create more, you're not going to be efficient. You're not going to be able to get back the length that you're putting in. Basically your muscles aren't going to be able to get you back quick enough because they're not strong enough. There's going to be a lag. What does that look like for a pitcher? Is that the same disconnection I would see as a hitter and the arm yes. then dragging and you're going to have less repeatability and Control yes. So, so because the body, because the, right too, right? The yeah. Arm lagging. yeah, because the torso isn't going to be able to rotate back as fast. It's not gonna be able to connect 
to that pelvis as quickly. So the arm then tends to want to accelerate early. And when the arm accelerates early, whether it's a hitter or a pitcher, it's going to accelerate in the wrong direction to start. So if I'm sideways, whether I'm a pitcher or a hitter, if I would just imagine accelerating, I'm going to accelerate that direction first versus being able to turn and then accelerate the direction I'm trying to go. So I'm trying to do that as a hitter and a thrower. I'm trying to rotate, produce force more in a linear fashion, even though obviously it's rotary. And as a disconnect, the pitcher will tend to throw arm side, arm side high because of that additional space that they're not able to, to essentially manage. Yeah. So for you people out there listening, the, the, a, a very simple way to think about this whip that we're talking about in the length of um, that whip in the middle of your body, I always compare it to a rope. So for me, I'm a tighter mover than Travis, the rope in the middle of my body, think of it going from my hip to or really it's a sling around my body from my hip around my scat. Mine is like six inches long. Travis has like 12 or 16 inches of whip. So for me, I'm going to have very little sh hip and shoulder separation because it doesn't take much to stretch or completely take the slack out of that rope in the middle of my body. Travis is going to need more in order to do that. And what we're saying, young players who are often looser movers, but not always, often looser movers don't have the strength that once they get that rope completely stretched out to stabilize and get back their torso back to their pelvis. Basically, they're not strong enough. So what happens a lot, and this is interesting, Travis, I didn't tell you this, I tested somebody a couple of days ago. Active thoracic was 80, 85. And then another 20 of passive, which is just about the loosest person I have ever tested. 17 years old. And the, like, there's just no way I can do anything mechanically with this hitter yet. Nothing whatsoever. Because they're just physically not strong enough to take the slack out of the middle of their body yet. And so that's one of those things that you have to be patient with younger, looser movers for the fact that it's just going to take them longer to get enough strength to actually have optimal mechanics. And what Travis is saying is sometimes you're just going to have to shorten that rope for them um, because they're just not going to be strong enough to, to carry either the slack that they have, which will be length present in a, in a swing or an arm dragging present as a pitcher. Right. And that's where like, as a, as a hitter, it's probably easier to, to mitigate that that problem because that goes back into basically that would be a guy that would be like hey you gotta your hands need to go first like it would be you you need to feel like you're pushing your hands you need to feel like your hands aren't getting stuck behind you because with that much space your hands are going to feel like they get lost behind you and then you're going to feel like you have to propel them around you which typically ends up going back across the belly button really fast Versus if you say, listen, like you've got this space, what you need to do now until you can manage that space is you have to tell yourself probably that your hands literally need to get across your body before you even turn just so they don't get lost when you do turn. And that's harder to do as a pitcher because you can't cheat. You can't cheat your arm and create a bunch of velocity. You know? Yeah. That, that, on the hitting side, that's interesting that you say that because think about how many times we have to say that to a hitter as a call it a band-aid if you want, but knowing what you have to do to get this hitter's hands caught up and not stuck behind them, that you'll say, I need you to take the knob to the ball. I need you to take your hands across your chest. And for all those people that look, I say this on several episodes that look at us like we're from a different planet and we're teaching something that's like voodoo. 
we're teaching some of the oldest cues that have ever been present in hitting oftentimes because there's way more less physical, looser movers in the age group that we teach the most because we have an academy with amateur players coming in it than anything else. It's, it's, I think that's funny. Like actually, if some of the people that think we are teaching voodoo would actually just sit in a cage with us for a while, like, man, you're teaching some really old shit that I've yeah, you, been hearing. You, you, bring up, you bring up a really good point there too because I, you know, on a daily basis, on a daily basis, like, you know, say for the last couple of months when especially all the college kids were home, you know, I would have ever had everything from, you know, eight-year-old like loose movers to eight-year-old tight movers to 15-year-olds to college kids to yeah. I, I would have every single, body, yeah. every single body type, every single movement style, every single, you know, even proprioceptive kind of nature for kids of like how they, you know, perceive how they're moving. And it's like every day which is why I enjoy what I do. Like every day is a puzzle. Like you're looking at going like, all right, every kid that walks in, it's like a whole new, it's, you're never giving, you're never giving the same lesson because every kid is so much different on that paradigm. Like it's there's so much different. Like you just, you always have to be assessing like, okay, what are these kids needs? Let's get into, again, let's get into their prep work. Like we already know you're a loose mover. We got to learn to control that. Let's get you back there and teach you how to control that range of motion better. Or it goes to like, you got, you need old school cues. Like we just got to, we got to shorten up. we got to think like super short to the ball with the hands. Like let's eliminate even the feel of this turn and just really just like get your hands across your body. That was like the old, um, one of my, one of my favorite things that popped up and I still use it a lot was um, the Bregman video where he was referring to flashlights on his body. He said, when I hit, I imagine I have flashlights pointing from my shoulders and from my hips straight across the plate. And he said, I imagine while I'm doing that, I'm trying to take my hands across my body without those lights turning direction. And he goes, I do that because I feel like if I don't do that, I feel like I fly open. Yeah. And a lot of times, a lot of times fly open means that the hands are lagging behind. Yeah. And then we're trying to rip the shoulder to try to get around. And then he followed it up with, I know I don't actually do that, but I have to tell myself to do that, or I feel like I'm going to fall into this other trap. And that's the thing, like trying to explain that to kids, like, listen, like sometimes the way you need to think about it is going to seem counterproductive to what you feel like you should do, but you sometimes have to tell yourself that to stay out of what ails you. And a lot of times what ails you is you're not strong enough. You're not stable enough. And you have to have a counter move to be able to balance out that until you have time to either get stronger or to become more stable. Yep. We have the ability to test rotary speed um, with uh, things like the K vest. And I've mentioned this on a, a previous podcast too, but what, what has scared me recently with amateur players are the players that actually turn way faster and perfect game now has a, um, partnership with KVEST and they are publicizing these um, rotary speeds and basically just, you know, 3D analysis, but they aren't putting the graphs up there. And I, I said, like, I really need the graph because if I'm just looking at rotary speed, now the, the person that, you know, the, the, the common consumer who is looking at this on perfect game site has no idea what it means anyway. But for me, if I see a guy with really high rotary speed, 
I don't know if that's good or not for them without seeing their deceleration rates. Because what scares me with amateur players, players that actually turn way faster are probably going to have suboptimal mechanics. Because what you just said right there, they're not strong enough to stabilize that faster turn. So although they're turning faster, one, that doesn't mean it's even going to translate into linear bat speed, which is the only thing that's really important, not angular speed. Or their direction's going to suffer. They are going to be that player that is pulling off the ball, that they're going to be feeling like, I'm turning really fast, but I have no control of this direction. I'm basically just spinning like a top. So that's something else. Like it, it, More is not always better is a good way to say it, whether that's I- shoulder separation or speed. And I do feel like there is, you like this, Travis, there is one optimal mechanic for every hitter and every pitcher. There's one optimal mechanic. It's just different for each player. There is one optimal way to swing or pitch for each of these players. It's just going to be different for all of them based on that underlying movement capability and strength. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, another big thing that I I have conversations about too is, is as you're going to that point, I think now, like, and again, we're probably gonna have a lot of references even to older shows, like, you know, the showcase era that we're in is a tough era because these kids are seeing speeds. And a lot of times the speeds that are seeing aren't like, what does this person actually do in a game? What is this guy that's hitting off a tee that's hitting 106, what is he actually doing in a game? Like, what are his, if you're going to go off body turn speed, like, what are his actual turn speeds in a game? What are his, what's his bat speed in a game versus what's his bat speed when he's just trying to launch baseballs off a tee? And a lot of times what ends up happening is you create these patterns to create a ton of speed off of a tee or even to, to just throw a baseball somewhere near a strike zone knowing that I can't throw a baseball that hard consistently where I need it to be. And it becomes this, like we're chasing this one number. We're chasing this really high thing. And what's, what's the, what's the realistic easiest way to get there? Try to turn faster. And what happens is again, the the faster you turn, if you don't have the strength to match what that turn is, you are going to, I'm just going to say, you're going to disconnect. And once you disconnect, your ability to strike the ball or your ability to throw a strike is going to severely diminish. So then you get into a game and and this thing that you've created and how you create that strength, or not strength, how you create that speed, you can't do in the game anyways. So you take a hitter off a tee, they over-rotate. Well, I don't even have to have anything other than a, a turn in. I don't even have to have a ton of, you know, retraction or resistance from the upper half. I just have to have enough turn in that I've got enough space to turn out fast you give me enough space i can get going fast in a small test that has ever been conceived for evaluating baseball players we've done this like we've had players either go into like a high school tryout or go into a showcase and they they tell me like a month ahead of time well i need to get my exit velocity up i'm getting ready to go through this tryout or go this test i was like the lesson that you come in prior to this tryout i'm going to give you the secret how to do this but I'm not going to give it to you a month in advance because I truly don't want you to swing this way. And what I'll have them do, I'll give them a big old donkey leg kick. I'll have them rotate their torso inward, like almost 90 degrees. And then I'm going to give them extra turn speed because of that. And they all say, they came back like, yeah, that really worked. Yeah, it's like, yeah, never do that again. So we cheated the test, but it has no bearing. And, and this is why 
college recruiters and professional scouts hate the showcase era as much as it identifies some players they want to follow because it has no symbolism in gameplay, what you just said. You get these guys that are all tooled out, or at least their numbers say they're tooled out. They can't play in a game because they can't support those same mechanics, get up to speed on time, or keep enough, enough direction to be repeatable as a pitcher, or enough direction to keep the barrel in the zone as a hitter. So they're all tooled out, but it doesn't equal any gameplay. And then they get on campus, realize that they can't play, and then they're shunning them off to junior college after one semester. Yeah, I mean, I and I realistically, like, I'd love to say I never fell into that trap, but there was part of it, like, when that first started coming up, when it was such a big deal, like chasing, chasing exit speed and chasing velocity, you know, you, you try and you try to be as like aware as you can about like what's what's the middle ground, like what's what's the middle ground of like we're, we're chasing speed, but we're not trying to lose actual physical in-game skill you know and you run into you run into again you run into guys that have like i'll give you a good example myself right like if you put me on a tee right now i could pop 100 i know i can because i know how to and i've got a long i've got a long whip so i can just rotate on the tracks i can can rotate way in and pull that off but the problem is you throw me a pitch if that pitch is over like 70 miles an hour i'm gonna feel like i just have to poke at the ball like i'm gonna feel like i can't i can't do that and because I could sit there and train that just to get to a big number. My, my body's going to say like, the only way you can get to that number is to do this. And then when I try to do that off a pitch, I'm going to be so late and I'm going to have to cheat like way early, which is going to be bad decisions. And then I'm gonna be like, well, to get to it, I, now I just have to basically try not to rotate and just try to push my hands to the ball just to get to this speed. And it feels uncomfortable. And that doesn't mean over time, I couldn't figure out how to get back out of it, but you're, you, you waste all that time trying to create this one thing that looks good that doesn't actually work for you. And again, like a lot of that stuff is going to be found out on a movement screen. You're going to be able to take a guy and say, listen, man, like here's how you're probably going to create force. And like, it's not always going to work out that way, but it's going to give you a really good starting point as to where it would begin. And then you can find things around that, whether it be, you know, rate of force production throughout the legs. So, you know, the rate of force production is low. So, finding stability through the lower half doesn't happen rapidly enough. And, you know, because of that, that leads to a disconnect somewhere else, you know, and, but without knowing kind of how the athlete would have to have their optimal scenario, it's hard to even know where to start, you know, and, and with a lot of guys too, when we first started out, I know me in particular, you know, I did what I saw when I first started giving lessons, I did what I saw other instructors doing. So I would, I would go shadow them so I could go learn how does like how does the tempo of a lesson go, like how much of this do you do, how much of that do you, how do you, what words do you say, how do you say those words, like how do you articulate this to an athlete? And it would always be like, hey, let's go hit off, let's go hit off the tee. And you know, one of the things that I feel like I've gotten out of more now is like I'll do my assessment, I'll watch how an athlete kind of operates. Then it immediately goes comes most of the time like the first thing we're gonna do is I'm gonna throw to you. Like, let's, let's just see now where you're currently at instead of me just going on a tee and trying to change a swing that's probably not even your swing because you're going to over-rotate and you're going to do all these things wrong off a tee anyways. And I'm like, oh, you're over-rotating. Well, they might not over-rotate off a pitch. So let me throw you a ball first. And it might only be 10 to 15 throws just so I can kind of see, like, how are you navigating this? And if you barrel the first couple up, then I'm just going to go a little bit faster. 
you barrel those up, I'm gonna go a little bit faster. I'm gonna kind of find in my mind what that threshold is, like where do you start to break down? And then why do you start to break down? And then we might pull it back again to the T. And then the next time they come in, if we're like, hey, you know, we know that our issue here is still sequencing, or we know the issue here is, you know, there's a disconnect for whatever reason, whatever the disconnect is, we might begin off the T the next session just so we can kind of address it as kind of movement prep. Like let's let's get this swing prep or movement prep, however you want to call it, is to kind of feel yourself, feel yourself be able to control what you can't control, and then eventually work back to to a throw again. But like, you know, I fell in the trap for a long time of like, oh, look at this guy hit off the tee. He over well, everybody over rotates off the tee. So it's like you could just start off a team like, oh, yep, you over-rotate. Look, you got you got work to do, you know, where you're not taking into consideration that the tee just isn't the same as a pitch. It's not. So we're teaching guys, hey, you're doing it wrong off of this is the probably optimal way to do it off a tee is to over-rotate because the ball's not moving. Why would you not take advantage of the fact that the ball's not moving? That's why golfers rotate so far back because you can because the ball's not moving. Yeah, that's like the, the T has its its time and place, but I agree that that is not my favorite thing to teach off of. And there's there's been players, even at professional level, I've had to like you're you're banned from the T because you just this carries over to your moving ball work, and we don't want you to have this type of in return. Yeah. Um, going back to the strength training piece of this, a lot of people spend money on these lessons for the skill acquisition piece of it, which I, I understand. But I tell them for every hour you are spending on skill, you better be spending an hour on your body. And that goes all the way down to the youngest age. Doesn't mean your eight-year-olds have to be lifting kettlebells and dumbbells over their head, but they better be doing something physical that's challenging their own body weight, where it's just going to make the money that parents invest on the skill acquisition so much more useful for them because you can't have one without the other Like in the same thing. You're not going to have professional bodybuilders and weightlifters that have the skill of a trained baseball player, but you can't, we have players that do this, that just work on skill till they're like 16 or 17. And then they're not getting recruited because they simply aren't physical enough yet. You've got to have a balance of both. Yeah. And I think that's the other thing too. Like, you know, part of, part of the default that we sometimes take for granted, and I know we understand it because we've talked about it before, but like we take for granted is, you know, the, the, just the sheer physicality, that we built up simply by having to be outside all the time. Now, for whatever reason, right? Like there was times like, there was times like, you know, my parents would come home from work and they both worked that they wanted to be able to come home and decompress for a little bit. And it was like, you guys need to be outside. Like we don't <laughs> hear noise in the house. Like get, get outside. We, we need, we need an hour of just like decompress from work. And like, if there's stuff that needed to be whatever, but even then, like there wasn't much to do inside. And we, you, I can't even tell you how many days I was out running. That pong, dude. Run, well, but that pong. Well, run it, running or jumping. I didn't have pong. Running or jumping or climbing trees or doing stuff that, doing stuff that you didn't realize it was getting you physically stronger. I mean, you knew you were moving better because you climb a tree faster. Or you could all rock, man. All of it. You know, where kids aren't doing that as much. So we... I disagree with that now. I think COVID has brought that back a little bit. I don't know, because the kids that come to my cage as a majority, and I'm not talking the older athletes, I'm saying like the kids that come to my age, in my, into my cage, 
the kids that come to my cage at this point, I ask them, I'm like, so, well, you know, what do you, what have you done during your break? Even if it was the holiday break or it was the, you know, during, you know, that shutdown for COVID where we had to shut down and then they would eventually filter back in when we could open back up. And I said, you know, what were you able to get done during that time? And a lot of them were like, well, you know, I just, you know, I didn't have anywhere to, you know, like my parents didn't want me to leave the house to go to the park even or whatever. And even the ones that could leave the house to like at least be at a park or wherever it was like, a lot of them were like, you know, there was nobody else there and they don't have the, they don't have the tools to be able to just sit and do everything by themselves. So they just didn't do as much. I think it's just easier now to not do anything because, because of that. Now that's not everybody. There's a lot of kids out there still that work exceedingly hard. I've got kids that I still have to tell that they need to like back off because they, they're like, I'm going to live two days. I'm going to live two times a day, six days a week. And I'm going to have an entire throwing progression that I'm doing pull downs and like doing this whole, all this other stuff. I'm like, bro, man, like you've got too much stuff going on. Like your body actually needs time to recover. You're going to suffer because you're actually doing too much. Now that doesn't happen way. It doesn't happen anywhere near as much as the ones like, Hey man, like you have to do something outside of you coming in here. Like if it, if it's a financial constraint, then stop coming in for lessons for a month and go pay for a, a trainer or a gym membership or whatever you need to do. Like, but you got to take care of the physical side because there's only so much that you can do. You can actually almost out physical the game. Yeah, like, you could be so fit. You could be so physical that you don't have to move great. You could have poor sequencing and just, and you can just simply out physical the game, but you can't just out move the game. Meaning like, I've seen people that are in great sequence and everything else like that, that are going to have a harder time hitting because they're just not physical enough to be able to keep up with the game as it speeds up. But the best athletes are going to be able to compete longer because they can just out physical the game because they can do things other people can't do. I think that happens even in the professional level. There's guys that have success in lower minor leagues and they fizzle out. And sometimes you don't have an answer for why it's like, well, they just out physical the game for a while until skill sets and athleticism started to all become closer to equal. And then guys with more skill continue to move on. I want to, I want to shift directions here and talk about some different eras of baseball. And I recall going back to when we were searching for different things at different times of what we perceived the best hitters to be. So let's, talk about King Griffey Jr. for a minute, who it was said, and I don't know if this is true or not, that he didn't do a great deal of weight training, um, but a hitter with a ton of torque and a ton of hip and shoulder separation. So there was a period of time where we said we need, and I probably felt guilty, guilty of this as well. I don't recall, but I'm sure I did. Um, we have all of our players should have this much hip and shoulder separation because we want to hit as good as King Griffey Jr. And this is one of the traits that he has. And so you think about training all players the same way, which I'm sure goes across the nation and majority of baseball academies, you teach like what you're comfortable with. And oftentimes instructors are just going to teach one way. Think about, and what's your opinion? What percentage of players is that actually going to help teaching all the same way? And what players is it actually percentage wise going to hurt? What, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go right to the I'm going to go to the pitching reference on this first. So the Ken Griffey Jr. reference. Absolutely, man. Well, I remember watching Griffey and just watching him move and being like, wow. Now, 
with his longer assumed longer whip, like aesthetically, had, it's a really pretty swing, right? It's like yeah. long. Because he had a he had a flow to it where he could he could just yeah. keep it moving. Flow to it, yeah. So in the in the pitching in the pitching world was Tim Lincecum. So Tim Lincecum, you know, they called him a freak. Tim Lincecum was notorious that he never lifted weights. And I think he came out in his different things and said, I don't li- I've never lifted weights. And I don't think he lifted weights until, until way near the end when he was basically out of baseball and trying to get back. Because what I think, if I had to guess, I don't know the answer. So don't, this is not like I'm quoting me on this. I would imagine what happened with Tim Lincecum was that he had a really big range of motion, which he did. I mean, you could yeah. see it. There's yeah. no doubt. There's no doubt what that dude's mobility was. He got to a certain point where at a younger age, as he was physically maturing, whether he's lifting weights or not, he's physically maturing, that he could control that range of motion. And as he got older, I think what ended up happening was he couldn't control that range of motion the same because of the strength required as the body doesn't recover as quickly as it gets older. And in return, his velocity started to suffer. And as soon as the velocity started to suffer, he had a harder time being where he was. Now, that being said, here's what ended up happening with Tim Lincecum. Tim Lincecum comes up, he starts throwing the way he does, and two two really big fads started basically right at that time. They're like, how come this short, skinny guy can throw a ball 97 miles an hour? Everybody should try to do what he does because – He's the freak because he could do things that people can't do. stride too, right? Well, so that's what it is. So it was hip shoulder separation because it was like, wow, look at how, look how far his, his pelvis is turned while his, his upper body is still resisted back. And I, I can't, even with my range of motion, I can't physically get in and out of the positions that he gets into. I could not do that. If you tried to make me do that, I would become worse. The other one was stride length. And his stride length, I, if I recall, it was something like 107 or 110% of his height. So it became like this huge fad of like, okay, we have to, everybody's got to stride out that far so you can take advantage of this momentum. And you got to create this hip shoulder separation while you're going out to that distance. And I remember at one point going to a throwing seminar, let's call it that. And I'm not going to, not going to name whose seminar it was, but I went to a throwing oh, seminar. This is, <laughs> This, this, is when I, this is when I was just out of college and getting into, into pro ball. And I remember going there and it was, okay, like walk off your height plus half a step and draw a line. And you basically at that point, every time you're going out, you're trying to find a way to get to that distance. And I just kept remembering like in my mind as I'm going through it, it was like, I have to, I, I feel like I have to jump to get out to this distance. And I feel like whenever I have to jump, when I have to kind of push out of my back leg to really get there, I feel like I would, like what I know now would be like a disconnect. Like it feel like there's a jolt in my body that I couldn't continue to stay fluid because I had to have, I had to have an extension in my back leg to push me out there. And it would like thrust my hip and then my hip would get separated from my upper body and I couldn't control it. Now there are guys that in the same thing, in the same seminar, cause we're throwing during the seminar, there's guys in the same thing that they would all of a sudden press themselves out farther and their velocity would go up a little bit. 
I went out farther and my velocity went down. But in my mind, it was like, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, this is what the research is saying at this point. This is what we're seeing. Like, I got to find a way to make this work. The amount of hours that I spent walking off my body, my body height and half of my foot and trying to get to that distance and throw well, I can't even tell you how many, I probably spent more hours doing that than almost anything else. And at some point I was like, I can't, I can't pitch like this. And then I finally had to just bail on it. And I was also guilty because during that time I was teaching lessons while I was still playing. I was teaching. So I'm like, all right, kids, we got to work on getting out here, you know? And that's where even like that little jump phase in baseball happened where you'd start seeing guys that would have that little propel, that little jump catch go. And some guys, it just fits the way their body moves and how they pull slack out of their system and how they can do that as one unit and they would just go bang look how good i am and the other guys would be like oh that doesn't that doesn't work i actually got worse my control suffers my velocity isn't going up i'm getting no gain to this thought but that's the way it was you looked at it and said why can this guy do this and if he's not lifting and if he's short and if he's all this and he's doing that then everybody needs to do that and then the next guy that came along was Araldus chapman now Araldus chapman is from all accounts from his teammates that I've heard and from everything else been out there, he is a physical freak. Like he is like stronger than the majority of people. He is incredibly fast. And I'm talking like sprint fast. Like the stories that I've, I've heard through people that I know that have been in that system, especially early on when he was like with the reds are crazy how good of an athlete he was. So here's the thing. He is he's probably a better strength and moving athlete than I was. And he had a long, and he had, and he had a longer frame. So I can't do what he could do either. And there's not a lot of people that can do what he physically does. So you can't model everybody off of what a couple of these freaks that you'd call them. Cause they're, they're at the end of the bell curve. They're, they're at the end of the bell curve. They're not in the middle of the bell curve. They're not the majority of how, a population would move they are at an extreme end and be, just because they're the better athlete because they're the ken griffey jr because they're the Raldis chapman that, that throws hard like that doesn't mean that that's how everybody should move but we tend to what always look what do you think the percentage is then the, the percentage of people that can move like those no, guys the percentage of, of people if you just taught linson comes mechanics to everybody how many, what percent would benefit in, so it's the same bell curve. So you're talking like five. Bell curve, then I'm going to, then I'm going to say 5%, yeah. maybe, so, maybe, maybe 3%. So that goes to my point. Like that's the scary thing about these facilities, man, that, that you have somebody that teaches, just like you were saying, you were teaching this one way because that's what you thought you should be doing. And that was what was optimal perceived optimal time. Think about how many players that we screw up from like a teaching system when, from teaching one way, you know, and it goes back to our original point. If you don't know the underlying capabilities of their body, you're as likely or more likely to screw them up than help them. And here's my next point on that. I think the human body is innately smart enough to figure out. It takes a lot of time, a lot of reps to figure out optimal mechanics for yourself without any instruction. And this is why in my mind, some young players that haven't had instruction yet will come into your cage. I'm talking like travel. So somebody's like played, invested a lot of time into playing for a young age. 
They will come in oftentimes striding very long and striding across their body. Why are they striding across their body? They're doing that because it's a natural way to take slack out of their system. Nobody's told them to do that. But when you stride across like that and you stride along, those are two ways to take natural slack out of your system. And, you, and your, your player all of a sudden is closer to achieving what their optimal mechanics should be for their body type and their age. Yeah, I mean, you that's that I the think, pitching side. What, what are some comments? Yeah. So the, the pitching side is, is that every, I shouldn't say every, that's, that's a terrible way to go. The majority of people that I have coming in at all, at all skill levels, except for, except for usually a little bit of the younger athlete, like when I'm talking like early on, like eight, nine, the majority of them overstride and it's way overstride. Like they, they, ex they extend their back legs so early that they end up pushing their pelvis sideways because that's what happens when you, when you jump, essentially, you're, you're, you're throwing your leg into extension, pushing through, through your hip and your pelvis. And so many of them disconnect that then that throws their entire ability to control. Essentially, we're just going to call it a stack, which is your upper body staying over essentially your pelvis throws it out of whack so fast and the majority of them have nowhere near the amount of strength that it would take to be able to pull a move like that off and there are guys that can pull a move like that off but again you're talking the three percent like you can't do that um other than that i would say like the biggest the biggest thing that i see from the throwing side is like a a error would be arm swing and the arm swing being essentially as a hitter, you'd think it'd be the same thing as being a load of having like such a big load that you can't manage what you're doing. The same thing with throwers, like the natural movement, the natural movement. And I, I did this for a, for a while there. I was, I was videotaping like five and six year olds throwing and every one of them would take the ball basically from, let's just say their leg and they would just pick it straight up and then they would turn and throw. And reality-wise, like their their patterning and the timing of their their movement of their arm and their lift, for most of those kids was amazing, but they they lack the rotary strength. So when they turn, then it looks like they're pushing the ball, and the first thing people want to do then is like, hey, let's 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 lengthen that arm out so we don't look like we're pushing the ball. And as soon as they added length into the arm, you start running into timing issues. And the problem is like proprioceptively, most of these kids at once they have that length, don't have the awareness of how to get back to where they need to be on time to be able to move, basically be able to hinge back through the elbow. And so you start running at all these areas and all of a sudden the arm lags, right? And the arm lags and then it looks like the guy throws sidearm. Well, there's a good sidearm and there's a bad sidearm. So you start getting guys that throw sidearm then the coaches, you know, tend to want to go or the parents want to go down to like, Hey, you're throwing sidearm. You got to get over the top, but the arm is still late because of a poor movement decision. And so now to get over the top, I have to create obviously a huge tilt. So now when I create a huge tilt, my head's going to go way to the side as my arm goes up. Then the, the coaches, the parents are going to be like, Hey, your head's going off to the side. Try to keep your head online. Well, here's the problem. You've now set into you set into motion the fact that if you had just let their arm do the path that it was already on and let the kid just get stronger as he gets older, the kid is in a relatively good spot now. I've never seen a five-year-old ball on his own and extend his arm away from him. Never seen it. I've never seen it. 
unless he's already been told that as a kid, like, hey, push the ball back. I've never seen a five-year-old do anything yeah, other than just lift their arm up to turn, ever. So part of that is the self-organization of like a ball to a five-year-old weighs more than it feels like it weighs to me because I'm not a five-year-old. Like I can lift nine ounces pretty easy. You act like a five-year-old sometimes. A hundred percent. Like li live your life to be young, my friend. Um, but I think that's a big part of it. Like I see kids come in and like a lot of it is just like the stereotypical stuff of like, oh, well, you got to. You gotta, you gotta drive, you gotta drive out of the back leg, which means basically jump, like basically by pushing, pushing into the ground or pushing, I shouldn't say into the ground, pushing against the mound or like whatever guys want to term it as is almost always going to lead to early extension. And that's going to throw all your rot your rotary capabilities basically into whack. And then I also like the big, like the arm going back, like it's stereotypical of like, oh, well you see these big league guys who are physically able to do things that a 10 year old can't do a 15 year old can't do and they're doing stuff where their arm might have a bigger swing but they have the proprioceptiveness and the ability to be on time and be able to manage that well that doesn't mean that we need to teach everybody to move like that because it's not necessarily a natural early movement so i mean that that's the same thing you'll see in hitting with you know over striding or over rotating or you know a lot of different things, you know, everything, everything, everything trying to be quick. Like how many hitters do you have to spend time slowing them down because their moves, it's, it's almost like their moves are too short. Like they start and their moves are real short, but because of that, it's everything has to be like real quick and short at the end to get ready to go versus like, Hey, try to be one footed a little bit longer. Like try to be able to have a little bit more time to get there. Now, again, if it's a tighter mover, less necessity to do that, but, you still don't want them to feel like they're rushed, you know? And so it's one of those things I think just you get so many weird crap that came up from forever that probably should be pushed away. And then there's some stuff that's been around forever that you're like, we need that stuff yet. That would yeah. go back to like, get the hands going or whatever, you know? What, what is the optimal stride length for a pitcher then? Is it just different for every pitcher going back to the rope in the middle of their body and how to take slack out? Same, same as every hitter. So I had this conversation with a hitter and a pitcher yesterday because I had an overstriding pitcher and I had an overstriding hitter. And I essentially said, I said, here's a good way to think about it. Think about your body as being color coded. So let's just say the back leg, let's say the back leg is going to be blue and the front leg is going to be yellow and the pelvis in between is going to be red. I said, your objective would be your back leg is blue, your pelvis is red, as you're trying to go forward, your red is trying to stay connected to the blue. At a certain point, as your legs widen, the red is going to want to pop back away from the blue because you're physically not going to have the ability through your adductors to hold your pelvis and your legs together. It's going to feel like your pelvis is getting pulled back away from that leg. That would tell you as a hitter, essentially where your stride length is relatively going to be. Now, if I'm coming out of that move because I'm getting a fastball, my stride length might gain a little bit because I'm taking advantage of the fact that I know what pitch is coming. But as a pitcher, when you get to the point where your pelvis essentially can't stay connected to the back leg, where it wants to come out, is when the pelvis should start to then rotate back into the throw. And that will take you to whatever distance you're going to go. So I always tell guys, think about it more like squatting and turning out of a squat rather than squatting and then pushing out of a squat. And that's what most pitchers do. Even that create a good initial move is they squat and then they push out of the squat versus getting into a squat, moving forward in that squat, and then being able to turn, turn the squat. 
So that's the only difference between pitching and hitting there is that pitchers at that point will let their momentum continue to go because at some point they are going to lean forward. As a hitter, a hitter needs to at that moment stop and stay in the middle so that they can manage their timing. So that, that's kind of the way it goes. Interception, which is your feel of body parts and space. Yes. One of the things I'm curious on the pitching side, since we're talking a lot about pitching today, and I had this conversation with a high-level pitching guy in pro ball, and we talk about from the scouting community, pitchers that can command tend to be repeatable. And this person was saying that the idea was more proprioception of the throwing hand than it was repeatability of the mechanics, meaning you take a guy with really good command and you tell him to pick up a ball, crow hop twice and throw it sidearm, he's probably still going to have good command and less about the repeatability of the mechanics due to his proprioceptive feel. Anything you have on that? 100%. Like I, this, 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 is, this, this honor should be a topic for an entire show. So, you know, forever, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface it with this. So we, we know, we know that energy starts from the ground. Okay, meaning like, even though we know we move from the middle of our body, we know that it has to begin with stability from the ground to be able to have the ability to move from the center of your body, at least to be physically strong. So a lot of times we teach it from like, hey, let's find a position that the middle of our body can move well. So where do your legs need to be, yada, yada, yada. But in reality, like athletes have to have the feel of that and also the feel of back chaining. And back chaining is essentially starting from the end and knowing where things need to be to be able to get to that end moment. So that's the conversation I have with a lot of kids. And again, this is literally a conversation I had again yesterday in the cage. And I have these conversations with a lot of kids because I think they need different ways to view things because that's the only way they're gonna learn to understand their feel or to create proprioception. So I had a kid that was throwing off the mound and he was not bad accuracy wise, but he would have, you know, a big enough variance where it's like, this isn't going to quite work in a game, but you're close. But then he'd have some balls that would just shoot off like six feet off. And you're like, in my mind, it's like, okay, this, this guy doesn't have much feel, proprioception, awareness, however you want to call it, of where his hand is in space and when it is in space. So I stood on the mound. I told him, I said, I said, the way I view it, because I try to explain to him in my mind, like how I perceive it because that's the easiest way for me to start the conversation and then I'll move the conversation if they don't understand it that way to a different way hopefully they can understand it I said if I stand on this mound and I step straight towards third base now mind you I'm on a box mound so when I step to the right I'm going to step to the side but I'm also going down like 12 inches because I'm not stepping forward on the slope and I'll step I'll step forward and at that point as I'm stepping forward all my momentum is going away from the target and because I'm dropping that much down, I have to basically throw su- like almost submarine because of the direction my body's going to get back across my body. So I did that. I stepped across. I threw it. Boom, like right in, right in the white box. Now, I can't throw very hard doing that because I'm just not moving in the right direction to be able to create a lot of speed. Then I said, look, I can do the same thing here. And I stood up there and then I stepped backwards off the mound. So I'm stepping, keeping my right, my, my right foot on the mound stepping backwards with my left and throwing back across my body and put the ball relatively close. And I said, the only reason I can do that is because I'm really aware of the direction my hand is moving when the ball comes out of my hand. So I would completely agree with that because in my throwing, 
And the only reason I've always felt like control is the easy part of throwing is because I guess for me, like the feel of where my hand has to be going in space and at the right moment, you could put me in a bunch of different directions and I could get there. And I remember when I first really started pitching and it was my senior year of college and then going into the beginning of pro ball. And I remember the first time I videotaped myself pitching when we finally had slow motion. I was like, okay, I'm going to use the camera. Like we used to have, remember we used to have the big portable camcorder because that's what we had to plug then into the preview pro. So I took, I set this thing up, took video, took it over, plugged it in, downloaded the video, pulled the video up into right view pro, all this stuff. I watched myself throw and I deleted the video faster than I watched the video. Cause I didn't realize that I threw so terrible as a mover. Like there was, there was very little redeeming qualities to how I moved. Like my knee was past my ankle on my front side. Like my body weight was shifted forward too far. My arm was in a bad position. My torso was already for, there was literally, there was nothing about being efficient that came through in what I did. And at that moment, I still physically threw 90 at that point, but it was because I was really physical. Like I was out physically, I was out physically in the game, but I could still control the ball because I was aware of where my hand had to be. And I think there's that innate quality in hitters as well, where you have guys that even if you put them in a crappy position, they can find a way to get their hands and the barrel to the ball. And you look at it and go like, how did you get to that ball? Like 99% of the people can't get to that ball the way you just got the ball. Like you were in a bad spot, you read the pitch wrong, and you still somehow are able to navigate that space and go boop and hit that ball. Like, so we, and we went through that, we went through that a couple of years ago where we were trying to come up with like more proprioceptive tests. Like, how do we, how do we I test? I haven't abandoned for, that yet. I haven't abandoned that. Just, well, either of what well, I'm saying, but, stole my list of TDs. but this is, but this is why, this is why I said this could be an entire show because the amount of things that I have now tried to experiment with and try, and they've done it a little bit now, like, you know, where you do different, um, different weighted throws and it's the same thing with bats, right? You're using a longer bat and then a shorter bat and then a lighter bat and then a heavier bat. And what you're doing is you're giving them different implements to essentially create proprioception because a, a 37 inch bat, the barrel is farther away from my hands. Well, I have to be aware of that. So I need to know my spacing when I turn, if I'm getting, if I'm getting jammed on that 37 inch bat, either there's a disconnect or I'm just not aware of where the bat is. And then if I give you a 27 inch bat and you're clipping it off the end of the bat, there's obviously a, a proprioceptive issue there if you're squaring up all the time on, let's say, a normal bat. Meaning, like, if you already have an athlete that's pretty good barrel-to-ball contact, if you give them a different implement and their proprioceptive nature is there, they should still catch a lot of barrels. And if they do, that probably tells you that that athlete has good awareness of their body and space and the implements involved in it. And the same thing with a baseball. If I give, if, if I give somebody a baseball and then next pitch have them throw a softball, they're going to have to be aware like, okay, this ball weighs a little bit more. So when my arm's moving this position, you know, it's going to take something different to move this ball there. And if I go a five ounce baseball versus a four ounce baseball versus a six or seven ounce baseball, their ability to be aware that there's additional outside factors and how does your body need to move to coordinate, to control that, that given task versus just like, this is a pitch. This is now a new task can you still solve this task? If you can't solve that task, there's got to be a proprioceptive 
default that's not helping you just be aware of the task. Yeah, I, th I agree. I think that's a, a future show that we can do on, on how you go about training that because I, that's, uh, I think a lot of people would disagree with you that command is hard for, for a lot of people. It wasn't hard for you because you had that probably innate proprioceptive feel. And so that, we'll, we'll revisit that topic in a future episode. Um, enjoyed talking to you today, Travis. Sorry that we couldn't get our, our guest on. Uh, Zoom and computers. And as you know, like email, Travis, those things can be difficult for some people in the 21st century, attaching things to an email, opening your email, or just getting on a Zoom call. Yeah. Today's show is uh, brought, you, brought to you by Hardee's of Robinson, where if you take your bicycle through the drive-thru, they still will serve you. Ham and cheese. Ham and cheese. Hi, ham and cheese. We'll see you next week, y'all.